0: You're listening to Our Faith, Our Country, the podcast that discusses walking with Christ and ties faith to America's foundation. Here's your host, Jason Bryant Jennings.
1: Proverbs 22.6, start children off on the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. The connection here, the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which has a clause in it that states, Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools, and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. My guest today on this episode co-hosts Fox & Friends on the weekend on the Fox News channel Saturday and Sunday from 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern. She co-hosts the podcast from the kitchen table on Fox News Podcast, and has a new book coming out later this year called All American Christmas. If that wasn't enough, she's also the world's best bowler in heels. Rachel Campos-Duffy, welcome to Our Faith, Our Country.
0: (laughs) I love that you give me credit for my bowling in heels. Thanks for having me on the show, Jason, first of all. And secondly, you know, I always am at a disadvantage with Will and Pete, when we have sports competitions, because they're both alpha males, very athletic, and I'm not sporty at all. I do a peloton and that's it. You know, I have a secret talent. You know, some people have secret superpowers. I have a secret talent that most people don't know, which is bowling. Because when I was growing up, my mom's part time job was at a bowling alley. She worked in the office there. And so I had bowling lessons as a kid, and I was in a little bowling league, and I guess my skill set hasn't left me, and I did beat the boys pretty handily, and as you say, in high heels, so it was a very proud moment for me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Rachel, it's great to have you on. Let's talk about growing up and what you've described in the past as a strict Catholic family. Talk a little bit about your growing up and how it's really shaped you.
0: First of all, I grew up in a military family. So I grew up overseas, primarily living all over the world. My dad is Mexican American. My mom is from Spain. I lived in Spain. I lived in England. I lived in the Middle East. I lived in Turkey for a while. I lived in Peru. And so I've I've just been all over the world. My parents were very amazing in that wherever we went, they made it a priority for us to travel and get to know the world. And I think that was very formative for me as a child growing up, especially since I lived in such amazing places like Turkey, where the early Christians were. And so growing up, I took tours of Cappadocia, where the Christians hid out. I've been to the seven churches, and I got to experience so much of our faith in real places. And then going to gorgeous cathedrals in Europe, and all of those things. So those were very formative experiences. But yes, I also grew up in a very orthodox, devout Catholic family. For my parents, that is the defining thing about our family, that they wanted us to really feel that we were part of the church and that we were raised with the values of the church. And that was definitely the most important thing happening in our lives. My mom was a catechism teacher and then a director of catechism wherever we were stationed. In the military, and we never miss mass. And whenever we could, we went to Catholic schools. So it was definitely a, a very Christian family. I think it gave me a good foundation for all the other experiences that I had as an adult.
1: One of the things, family-wise, that you explained and talked about a little bit a few years ago in an interview you did was your motto when it comes to raising your kids. And it's my job isn't to get you into Harvard. It's to get you into heaven. Talk to us a little bit about the meaning behind that for you.
0: You know, it's interesting because you had Ainsley Earhart on as your very first guest. And I remember the first time I told Ainsley that that was my mommy motto. Because a lot of people with just one kid or two kids often say, well, how do you do it with nine? And my response to them and my response to Ainsley was, I keep it simple. If that's your goal, to get your kids into heaven, not Harvard, which by the way, if they go to Harvard, they might not end up in heaven at this rate. I would say that it simplifies life because there are so many things distracting us as parents There are so many people trying to keep up with the travel soccer teams and the extracurricular programs. And all. there's so much thrown at us and there's so much distractions for us as parents and, and what to focus on. And when you get down to the brass tacks, what do you really want? I love my kids and my husband so much that I want to make sure I see them when I'm in heaven, God willing, that I end up in heaven. I want us all to be together again. And that's my job as a parent. That's my husband's job is to make sure we raise children who are prepared to to get to heaven. And so if that's the goal, then like, because you can't afford the, the tennis team, I remember I had a child who really wanted to take tennis and at that time it was expensive and we, we couldn't afford to do it. And if I didn't have that motto, I might just beat my head up, you know, up against the wall and feel all that parenting guilt about it because she had other, you know, friends whose parents could afford to do that. I couldn't with all the kids I had and the salary we were on at the time. And so I didn't beat myself up over that because I knew that what I was giving her in the long run was the most important thing. And I think that you could name a series of other dilemmas that parents face and life choices we have to make. We had to make a decision as a family about my husband's career. He loved being a congressman. He adored it. He was really good at it. A lot of people, you know, once he got out, wanted him to run for governor. But we made a decision after about 10 years in office that while we have no regrets about Serving our country in that way and moving the ball forward politically, which I believe my husband did in office. He was very pivotal in getting Donald Trump elected and many conservative policies that we personally believe in. It took a real toll on our family. And we had a lot of signs from God that, you know, it was just too much. And the final sign we got was we had our ninth child. We knew she was going to be born with special needs. And we thought, you know what? We don't know what we're going to have to do to meet the needs of this child along with all the other children we had. And we really thought that that was the final sign from God because we're always listening and praying and trying to see what God is trying to direct us to do. And my husband said, I love public office, but right now I think I need to focus on my family and I'm going to make a career change right now. And I may go back later to run for office again, because he really loved that career. He loved doing that. But our first job is for our kids. So again." When your goal or when your your mission is to get your children into heaven, it becomes easier to make these decisions that could really be very difficult when you don't have your priorities right. And in fact, Jason, our family has hanging in our kitchen, our family mission statement. And I think every family should have a mission statement, just like any corporation does. It's easy to lose focus. And so as a family, I think it's a really good idea for families, for parents to sit down make a mission statement, sit down with the kids, see if there's something else that you know everyone can agree on that needs to be added or whatever. Every family should have a mission. And I believe that at, at its core, its main mission is to love and serve God and to make sure that we are serving and loving each other in a way that helps us all get to heaven.
1: Rachel, you brought up the person that I wanted to talk about next on the show with you. I haven't mentioned this on the show. I'm adopted. And I was adopted when I was three months old. So this next topic really means a whole, whole lot to me. And Rachel, I know you probably know where I'm going with this. Texas just came out. Supreme Court upheld the heartbeat law for Texas. You and Sean both have done a lot of work with one of the top three governors in our nation with Christy Noem. Having to center around Valentina and Down syndrome, talk a little bit about that work and why you feel that every life is just so so precious.
0: It is. This bill appears to be now the law of the land in Texas at 6 weeks when a heartbeat is detected, you can no longer have an abortion or in the way the law is written, you can sue someone who is having an abortion or aiding and abetting in an abortion. It's a very kind of tricky law, it's a way for them to get around judicial review. I think the pro-life movement has been very smart to work incrementally, and this is one of the ways they got around something, you know, they've been trying forever to do a heartbeat bill. We don't know if this will end up standing, for, you know, it's obviously going to be challenged. but here's what's interesting about it is that it passed in Texas, and what I see happening in the pro-life movement, Jason, is that... While we should be working to find ways to incrementally change the law and ultimately overturn Roe v. Wade, and maybe then it'll go back to the states and there'll be some states, you know, that choose to ban abortion altogether, which would be a wonderful thing. We really have to thank technology for where we're at. The reason why this bill passed is because Americans are becoming more pro-life, not less. And the reason they're doing that and the reason why their opinion polls are changing and every year becoming more and more pro-life is technology. Because Americans are meeting their babies when they're in the womb. And many of these young mothers today, even ones, you know, who get pregnant and it's not what they expected, have met their siblings in utero before because 4D ultrasound technology has been around for a while now and young mothers grew up with it. Um, as I said, saw their siblings in utero in 4D images that are not grainy images, the kind that I saw with my first baby 22 years ago, but the images between what I saw 22 years ago and my last baby, Valentina, who's now going to be two years old, I mean, there's just no comparison. And so science is on our side. And pro-choicers increasingly look like science deniers, people who can't appreciate or understand or are in denial of fetal development. So when you see a 4D ultrasound, Jason, it's just impossible to deny the humanity of a fetus. Our country is becoming more pro-life. The pro-life movement is clever to keep pushing the envelope just as Texas is doing. Already, Florida has said that they're going to jump in and there's going to be other conservative states that are going to say, hey, it works in Texas, we're going to give it a try. And we should keep pushing that envelope and we should still be thanking God every day for this technology because the more we have a window into the womb, the less likely that the other side, the pro-aborts, will be able to push their lies and their euphemisms about blobs of cells and all the other words that they use to dehumanize a baby. And of course, when we dehumanize anybody, then we can do anything we want to them, which is exactly what's happening. It's a holocaust in our country and in the womb. And and it is a holocaust, by the way, Jason, that discriminates. It is black and brown babies and disabled babies. Eugenics has always been at the heart of the pro-choice movement. Its founder was a eugenicist, and we see it today. A Newsweek contributor actually it was criticizing this new law and said, Yes, oh boy, I saw the that. Part about, did you see that?
1: I saw, new, that I saw that, and I saw your response to that. Yes. Go ahead, Rachel. Tell, yes, us, tell he, the listeners about that.
0: Absolutely. He tweeted, sometimes they say the quiet part out loud. They try and couch what they say, and sometimes they say it and the truth comes out about who they are. And this Newsweek contributor said, you know, this law is so dangerous. Just think how many more Down syndrome babies we're going to have, because if you can't have an abortion after six weeks, well, you can't detect chromosomal genetic problems that early, and therefore, more people are going to end up having babies with Down syndrome. And in his tweet, he was saying, basically, this would be a terrible thing. Well what was so wonderful that came from his horrible mean tweet is that the whole internet went wild with people sending all these amazing photos of their beautiful down syndrome babies and and all the joy and love that they bring to their lives and of course I responded as well and sent a picture of our beautiful baby with her daddy at the lake she's you know enjoying a speedboat ride and so happy and full of joy And I explained in the tweet that she is, hands down, the only thing our family agrees on, she is the favorite in the family because she's an angel. She's a vision of unconditional joy. She's all smiles. She's all love. And I said to him in the tweet that I hope that she would melt his heart and that he needed it because it is an absolutely horrible thing for him to say, but not just to say it was so clear that he believed it.
1: And I'll go back to the fact that I'm adopted when I finally understood that God created all of us in his own image and created us with a purpose that he only knows. Why should any of us take away the future purpose of God? Which is basically what I think you're doing when you do that.
0: Absolutely. It's such narcissism, right? To think that that man or anybody else, when they say the words unwanted baby, or, you know, Down syndrome, you know, disabled children all the things they want, all the categories they want to put in for why there's justification for abortion, all of it is saying that I'm God, I'm going to decide who deserves to live, what is the definition of a perfect baby or whatever it is, um, or a perfect situation. And you're absolutely right. We all have a purpose. And that's the problem, Jason, with people who are atheists. It's not that they're horrible, you know, terrible irredeemable people at all. But it's just really hard, I think, much harder for people without faith to understand that we're all here for a purpose and that we're created by God and that God created us to fulfill that purpose. And I just think it's harder for people without faith, people who are secular, to understand the way you and I think.
1: Coming up here in a few days, everybody knows we have probably the most patriotic day, the day that over any other day in our country's history, pulls us together and pulled us together when it happened. Of course, 9-11 coming up here in a few days. Rachel, you mentioned you grew up in a military family. What are a couple of the biggest lessons that you learned about patriotism growing up in a military family?
0: Oh, that's such a great question, Jason. If you're not in the military, you may not know that it was racially integrated decades and decades before the rest of America, that it was until not too long ago, a very merit-based organization where promotions were based on merit, based on achievement and not on race and sex or sexual orientation. That's changed now, which is very sad. When I was growing up overseas as an American, we just saw each other as Americans. Um, Here you were in this foreign country, we were united by the fact that we were Americans and we all missed America. The USO would come. I've talked about this on the show before. USO would come. We'd see, you know, I remember being a little elementary school girl and seeing the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders for the first time and going, oh, my God, this is what America, you know, because I was overseas so much. And it just felt like America was coming to us, you know, and they would bring Broadway plays to our base theater. And there was just so much that I loved about America. But what I loved about living overseas as an American is we never saw race. We only saw each other as Americans. And yet in the military, the other thing is that everybody is married to everybody in the sense that like, you know, there's black people married to Vietnamese people and Hispanics married to white people and white people married to Korean people. I mean, it's like there was so much mix and so much racial blending in the military because people get stationed abroad, just like my dad did. And he fell in love with a woman from Spain. And so these things happen and you grow up in this very... Racially integrated environment. In fact, I remember coming back to the States and being surprised that it wasn't as racially integrated as the military was. I think that my sense of patriotism was enhanced by living abroad. And now I feel really sad about where we are as a country, that we are becoming obsessed with race, that there are people who are racial hucksters who are trying to take away this unifying notion of Americans and trying to divide us by race and sexual orientation. I wrote a book called Paloma Wants to Be Lady Freedom. It was my first children's book. It did very, very well. And I wrote the book because I feel like when I go into the children's section, the cultural left is absolutely targeting our children. All of those books that I saw, the ones being promoted, the ones being pushed by Barnes & Noble, the ones that when you go onto Amazon appear on the forefront for you to, you know, purchase the most. They're all about diversity and diversity is fine, but we're forgetting to tell our children the stories about what unites us as Americans. And that is patriotism. That is love of country. They're tearing down our history and they're tearing down these bonds, these civic patriotic bonds that we've always had and that have always made this experiment of having people from different races and countries come to this one place in search of freedom. And if we continue to break this down, where I think we're seeing this nation being pulled at the seams, I don't know how much more we can allow the left to push this agenda without there being a civil war. And it may not take the form of a violent civil war like our first civil war, but it just may, and we're starting to see strains of this, it just may be a cultural and an economic civil war. You're starting to see even people within their own states, if you live in a purple state like I did in Wisconsin, that conservatives are starting to move to towns that are conservative. And so the, the red zones are getting redder and the blue zones are getting more blue. And that's not just because of gerrymandering. We're starting to see that it's people voting with their feet. And you're starting to see people go, you know what, I want to live in the free state of Florida. And they are move- people who want that kind of freedom from all the regulations and mandates and craziness that happens in blue states. Are moving to a place like Florida. And so we're starting to see this kind of division. And I don't think that it is Republicans who are pushing this agenda or conservatives. I think conservatives are just at the edge end of the rope. They have no idea what else to do. They don't feel like they have any control because institutions have all been now dominated by the left. Conservatives were fighting for elections and the left was much more... Deliberate and they were fighting for territory and by territory, I mean institutional territory and they started to take over education. They obviously have dominance over Hollywood and culture. And now through the Trump administration, it was exposed and we now see that they have control of even the entire federal government. I mean, the CIA, the DOJ, these places were all dominated by the left. And so what we're seeing is that it is becoming harder and harder for conservatives to have a voice. And so they're starting to go, you know what, we we might have to just live in Christian conservative enclaves. And I don't think that's what America was supposed to do, but I just don't see what other options we have if continue to feed more and more territory
1: to the left. A couple more topics here. We all know that the Pledge of Allegiance has been under attack for a long time. I remember back to elementary school when it was not under attack. And every day, kindergarten through sixth grade, we would always start our school day off with the Pledge of Allegiance. Recently, out in Iowa, the governor signed the bill to require the Pledge of Allegiance in schools. Awesome job that they did out there in Iowa to get that done. But I want to get Rachel, your thoughts on this, because I thought it was absolutely awesome. I was substitute teaching down at a school called St. James High School, Murrells Inlet, South Carolina. And they would always do the Pledge of Allegiance, but they would do it at the beginning of second block, not at the beginning of the school day. And I asked the students why they did that. And they said, we have so many students that have late arrival that our principal wanted to wait until everybody could be there. And that's why we do it at the beginning of second block. Rachel, your thoughts.
0: I love it. (laughs) I love that. That's a principle that understands that unifying his students who are probably very diverse and from different families and different backgrounds, uniting them under the flag and teaching them about patriotism and civic duty. That is absolutely wonderful. What that is. That is a very rare bird, and most of our public schools, in the name of diversity and inclusion and sensitivity, aren't doing that. Sadly, too many of our teachers' colleges have been really overtaken by Marxism, and so these are very anti-American teachers that come out of these colleges, and so people wonder, why are they you know, indoctrinating? Well, they're getting indoctrinated themselves in the teachers' colleges, and they're coming out with all these anti-American... Ideas And one of the ways they try to, you know, sort of break down those things that parents want their children to have is by diminishing the importance of the pledge of allegiance. And so I think it's such a simple thing, but rituals are important. That's something that, you know, especially as a Catholic, I really understand uh, ritual unites people. Ritual gives us a sense of history, a sense of connection to our past. In a pluralistic, multiracial society like ours, it's absolutely imperative. And when it breaks down, as it is right now, you get this kind of division. So good on that principle, and I wish there were more
1: who were. Rachel, I know that we may be breaking some news here with something you have upcoming. I had a chance to watch all of the episodes that you did on Fox Nation for your special Women of the White House There's a second season coming up. What, if anything, did you find out regarding our former first ladies and faith? What I did learn
0: about first ladies in general, it was very intriguing to me as a political spouse, is just how much influence they had. Even, you know, when you go back to Dolly Madison and, and Abraham Lincoln's wife, and, you know, when you go all the way back, the women have very powerful roles. And those who have studied the history of these women, you know, the public wasn't always aware of just how influential they were in their husband's career. And in fact, I would say with every one of presidents we covered with the exception, trying to think there was one exception because she was a second wife, almost all of them, I don't think those men would be presidents without those particular wives. They were very intelligent. They were using their skill sets they were performing diplomacy on behalf of their husbands and helping their husbands to advance. So that to me was extremely fascinating. To be honest, none of the women that we covered left a very indelible faith story that I could say that I was gravitated towards. I'm hoping that in this next season, we'll be able to delve a little deeper into that. But in the first season, I was left very impressed with how intelligent they all were and how involved they were in their husband's lives. People got all really, you know, upset when Hillary Clinton said you get two for one. Well, the reality is we've been getting two for one for a long time in America.
1: (laughs) You mentioned earlier in the show, one of your books, you have another book that is due out Amazon saying November 16th All-American Christmas it's co-written by your husband I've read the description of this it sounds like there are some amazing stories but I'm going to tell you Rachel I can't in my head picture Brett Bear running out onto a baseball field at an MLB game
0: <laughs> What's interesting about it is there's going to be stories from lots of different people so Sean and I are sort of a Hosts of the book, and there is stories about our family and Christmas. But there is these juicy and Ainsley and Brian and I believe Tucker and there's just a lot of people. Geraldo love Fox News. You love all the people that are hosting the shows or appearing on the shows. You're going to get to get an inside glimpse into how they celebrate Christmas. And we're all so different. It's a very diverse, you know, group of hosts. And so I think it's a really interesting thing. And again, this is something that unites us, these traditions around Christmas. And that's why so many of us are fighting to make sure we keep it Christmas and not holiday. And that we celebrate things that unite us as a country.
1: You mentioned your podcast Tell my listeners about that, because I think one of the favorite episodes that I've listened to for me personally was (laughs) the one that you and Sean did with Puck, because that guy is hilarious. So tell my listeners a little bit about your podcast.
0: That's so funny that you said that. He just texted me and said, I want to do another episode with you guys. So you might get that, Jason. So we have a, a podcast. It's called From the Kitchen Table during the pandemic, Sean and I were we would hang out more at the house and we had things we wanted to say. We literally put our phone on the kitchen table next to a stack of books and just recorded our, you know, a conversation that we wanted to have about what was going on in the world because so much has changed this past year. I think we're going to look back and go, you know, what happened here? How did we lose all of our freedoms? Why did we agree to do all these things? And so we sort of started Documenting and talking about those things and then Fox was like, Hey, we really like this. We should turn this into a podcast. And so we did. And it's called from the kitchen table, just like the little Facebook post that we were posting during the pandemic. I hope people will go on. You can listen to past episodes. As you said, Jason, we had some old real world friends on. We had John Brennan. He's a minister actually has baptized, I think over 300 people has worked in Africa. And that episode is one of my favorite, too. We had uh, Congressman Waltz from Florida talking about his experience in Afghanistan. Rick Grinnell, Ambassador Rick Grinnell. We talk about CRT. We've interviewed homeschool parents. We really try to make it, just like the title of the episode, from the kitchen table, the things that parents and people of faith are talking about and care about. And so I hope people will check it out. It's really our passion project. So thanks for bringing that up, Jason. And by the way, love your podcast. And I, I can't tell you how honored I am that you invited me to be part of it.
1: Rachel, it's been my honor to have you on the show. Go ahead and pray us out.
0: Absolutely. Um, In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for Jason and his podcast and all the people that he's reaching through his good work. I hope that, Jesus, you would bless all of us and lead us towards the place that we need to be to use our talents and our gifts and our platforms towards your good to bring more people to heaven and to you. Lord Jesus, we pray over everyone who is listening to this podcast. We pray for their families and their children. We experienced so many horrific things overseas with our brave military, and we pray for for those souls, but also for their families, parents, the wives, and husbands, everyone who is left behind knowing that this holiday season, there will be an empty seat at those tables. We ask you to bring them comfort. Um, in this very, very terrible time. And of course, Lord Jesus, we pray for our country. We pray for more patriotism, we pray for more love and unity among all of us as citizens. And we ask that you continue to bless this great country, which was founded by Christian men. And we ask that our country will continue to be a country that puts God first and realizes that all of the good and all the blessings come from you. We ask this in your name, Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father and the Son.
1: Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Our Faith, Our Country podcast. Be sure to follow us on all of our social media at Faith Country Pod or by searching for Our Faith, Our Country podcast. Until next time, later times, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to Our Faith, Our Country. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.